Hello, and welcome back to Free Reeling It, uh, a movie a movie watching podcast with your two friends. I am one of those friends, and uh, as a as a quote from this movie, I am that horror. My name is Matthew. I'm joined by the better friend, Jesse. Jesse, how are you? Hello, I'm Jesse, and I am that whore, as the movie quotes are. Uh, wait, that's not the right one. No, uh, I did I'm, that one. <laughs> I, I, is there I, an echo in here? <laughs> I, um, I'm doing okay. It's been a long week, but yes. I'm excited to talk about this movie because I think this movie is very, very good. Yeah, this this movie rules. Um, so uh, let's just get right to that. We are talking about the... We are talking about the 1948 film, The Red Shoes, uh, one of the many fine, fine films to come out of the filmmaking partnership of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, and probably one of the better representations of ballet in the cinema, as far as I am concerned. It's based on the eponymous fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, and uh, and yeah, stars Moira Shearer as Victoria Page, Anton Walbrook as uh, Boris Lermontov, and then I am kind of forgetting the rest of the folks. Uh, oh, uh, Mar- Marius Goring as Julian Craster, uh, Robert Heltman as Ivan Bol- Boleslavsky. And then uh, Albert Basterman, Sergei Ratov, Leonid, Leonid Messine as Grisha Lubov. I think that's all of the main principles. There are several others that show up, but nobody else get, gets as much screen time as those folks. This is also one of those films that um, was painstakingly restored. I don't know how little copies were around when that happened. I just know that like the Scorsese's team and like studio like took a lot of time to make this movie like watchable now. Yeah. Well, it was in the, it was like, I think it's just gone through a new coat of paint since its original release in the criterion collection. Um, Much of that history. I I'm actually not familiar with, but, um, but yeah, this is one of the, I'll say it, one of the more beautiful representation, beautiful representations of the Technicolor era of, of color film, because it's it's kind of a feast for the eyes from frame one. Like they never really, they never really, they don't really ramp up. They just get started right away. And uh, and it rules. How do we want to do this, Jesse? Hmm. How do we want to do this one? Do we want to kind of just go through the motions of what this movie is? And as we're going through it, talk about the performances and the the story and the acting and the visuals, et cetera. Sure. Basis of this movie is this is about a ballet dancer um, who falls in love with ballet. Mm-hmm. I, I think what the most important thing is actually to start from the very beginning. I've put this on like a couple months ago, I put, I put this in cause I've owned the movie for a while and I'm right. like, oh, I should watch the red shoes. I know how porn this movie is. So I put it on and the opening scene is a bunch of people watching a ballet. And I knew it was about a ballet dancer. So I'm like, Oh, is this what this is? Is like these people reacting to this ballet? Is that what this movie is? It is. And then I was watching it and I'm like, man, I don't know how I feel about all this talking over the ballet. Is that what this entire movie's going to be? So like at the moment, I got maybe five minutes in and I'm like, I don't think I vibe with this right now. So I just turned it off. I didn't get any further. So I really didn't know what the movie was about and watching it for this. Now it's really interesting to watch these two, the two main players besides the, the, what would you call him? He's not the ballet creator. He's like the ballet sponsor, right? He's the company director. I think probably. Yeah. Um, To watch these two people fall in love Oh, well, want to fall in love with the ballet. That's the the main actress, um, uh, Moira Shearer, mm-hmm. and then the other being real pissed off that his music's stolen. Right? Yeah. And then these two people go to this ballet director to for different reasons, mm-hmm. and both of them join the ballet. Right? Yeah. And 
that then spins out into their real life and not now I'm, I'm breaking it down like this i realized oh wow the beginning matches the end <laughs> which yeah. is really really smart it's yeah it's 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 one like i didn't i i watched this movie uh probably before like somewhere between the years of when i moved to philly in 2003 and 2010 for the first time um don't remember the exact time but i remember just wanting to watch it again just because i thought it was just a beautiful movie to look at and i i also thought the score is pretty good because it, it is um and then i noticed that i'm like oh wait a minute this is way more i'll say clever than i initially thought and and it's kind of weird watching it now is you start you, you sort of realize that wait a minute there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of stuff in this movie that seems to carry through to today not just like in influence and 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 use of ideas of of mise-en-scene or um editing or playing with the playing with the representation of a medium in a different medium and with that i'm referencing you know ballet to film yeah uh but like i'm gonna say it right now uh anton walbrook as boris lermontov big joss joss whedon shaming a pregnant woman energy like big just i don't care if i get his name right josh whedon energy in general right like yeah like this in in general his treatment towards uh women and talent in this film is a very whedon-esque yeah like i think and it's funny i i think brad bird uh, does a little bit of an intro to this film on the Criterion channel, which I watched that and that was kind of interesting, um, mainly because the interviewer is pointing out that this guy who has kind of made his name with Pixar only has one color film in his 10 favorite Criterion films and it's this one, um, which is just like, what a way to go because uh, it's, it's it's brilliantly photographed in my opinion. But yeah, uh, Anton Walbrook is, has definite big joss whedon energy and marius goring is the he comes off as a real prima donna just throughout and none of that ever really registered to me before and it kind of seems like the one who is the most serious about the craft is the one who spends the most time giving up the most yeah and that's 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 more shearer and Oddly enough, this is her screen debut and what a fucking grand slam for a first performance. Holy shit. She's she's amazing from frame one. And I think if I were any of the other principal characters, I would be completely entranced by her as well. Yeah, I, I like this movie a lot. And um I'm not really sure where else to go with it. I know, I know we just started. I think that's probably just a sign of fatigue, but I think it's also the sign of like, how do you, we, we spend a lot of time in, on the show trying to like critique, I think more mm-hmm. than anything, because that's what the show is like all about really is like breaking down movies that we enjoy watching, but like, what are their problems? What, what, what was cool about this? Where did it influence? Um, not to say there's such a thing as a perfect anything, right. but this is a perfect movie. Yeah, no, I I would um, agree, I would agree with that. There there isn't a, a moment, and perfect in the sense of like if you like these types of movies, like older movies that like spend a little more time getting to know the characters and not moving the plot like rapidly. I was listening to somebody talk about like '90s movies or whatever, and it was like, yeah, the, they just get into the plot and they move a little fast. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's just not movies that are old. They just don't do that. Um, mm-hmm. So if you like these type of movies, I think this is a perfect one of these types of older movies where it gives itself time to let these characters breathe and live. And you have to watch them live a bit before you get to the next plot point or you get to the next action scene or whatever. And there's also no blatant like this is who I am as a character. It's it's kind yeah. of like you you have to watch you have to watch their mannerisms. You watch how they interact and you're like, oh, I kind of understand this character now. Other, uh, it, other than Whedon, no one truly shows their true colors until the end of the film. And even then, the two men are the only ones that are really showing true colors. And the she's just kind of caught between 
complexity in a way that I don't think it was rarely shown back then. But when you think about older movies, you don't think about this complexity. Right. I think there's I think that I think there's a one of those things where like when you think of older movies, you think Wizard of Oz, you think um Gone with the Wind, you think mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean, like all these big epic type things. Uh, yeah. even me, like I well like, we could talk about this briefly later, but I, I watched Spartacus this last week. Yes, there's complex there's small complexities with some of these characters, but not like this, not like this engrossing, like I just don't know what I want to do, so I'm just gonna kill myself. Spoilers for the end, by the way. <laughs> Which uh, yeah, continue, sorry. I so 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 I I've never I, I've never read any Han, Hans Christian Andersen. I'm not going to pretend to have before, but I feel like this might be one of the better ways to represent one of one of their stories. And I'm I'm for some reason I'm at a loss as to what Hans Christian Andersen also wrote. Uh, but I feel like this is if there was one way to represent like a fairy tale or a fable on screen you have a really high watermark here because I, as Anton Walbrook, uh, as Lair Montav, you know, articulates in the film, the red shoes is about a woman who wants to dance in who ha- her, her only ambition is to dance in this pair of red shoes. And when she does, it's great. But then you realize that the shoes are not tired. So they will dance forever, but they never get tired. So the, the main character in that story, uh, dies as a result um now when you think about just those broad plot points you're like how the hell do you start to even think about representing this on screen now i know that this movie exists and there's probably people who know this movie exists and think oh well of course that's a way but how does i I would like to know what's the zero to red shoes journey on how you get there and i think that powell and pressburger they do that they do that story justice as well as you know they do these characters justice and they do this particular story in this film justice and i think that's a that's a difficult set of objectives to hit in a, in a lot of ways now a lot a lot of the time when i watch a movie especially from this time period and i and i i the cynic in me goes, okay, so when's Hollywood going to redo this and how are they going to do it? That doesn't happen with the red shoes. Cause I kind of just think that maybe no one will just ever touch it. I really hope that no one ever touches it because it's it, like you said, it's kind of perfect. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, and, and I, what I, what I love is that Victoria page, uh, Moira Shearer's character spends the entire film i i don't feel like she's completely subservient to the to the men in her life i i think that she is able to use her own abilities to kind of fit into everyone's boxes without necessarily being a bend over backwards people pleaser yeah and i and i think she kind of puts that forth right with her entrance where you know she's originally supposed to be you know a quote-unquote a surprise for Lermontov and as it you know is sort of a dance at a party and he's like you know I'm I may be a I may be a ballet director but that doesn't mean every time I go to a party I want to see I want to be in an audition I get that I feel that I totally understand no one wants to work while they party Lermontov um but the fact that she squares up to him and says, yeah, that was, that was supposed to be me. And then they have their conversation and she's like, fine, I'll show up. She shows up and she starts thinking she's a, she's a, you know, she's a personal friend of his, they'll be able to talk and he will give her a part. And then she says, nope, I have to work. She learns that, nope, she has to work for it. And she does, you know, frame in, frame out. You see all, you see without seeing that rocky montage you see a rocky montage yeah and i love i love how just elegant all of that is and then the moment she she sort of grasps that he's noticed like how good she actually is 
cinematically there's tension but when you but like the way they're cutting between their glances it's almost like two co-workers looking at a looking at a difficult job going okay we're doing this rather than uh see i told you i would win you over or or him you know being the the mentorship like i knew you could do it and uh, i think i think that's i think that's just so freaking cool and i a lot of times films like that could look at this and say like maybe there's a better way to do this rather than the kind of saccharine played out way but of which, course you can't, you can't always do it with the nuance that you know pages interacting i'm thinking about like the complexity of the narrative and when you break it down to its key points it doesn't seem as complex but they they ma- as we talked about before they like they mask a lot of stuff um, mm-hmm. they, they try their hardest to hide the true intentions of a lot of the characters and even like uh, when the the main ballet dancer before her show like gets married right and uh uh does she get pregnant is that it Do no you- she gets engaged she's engaged but she's leaving the ballet because of it yes um you can see the anger in um What's his name? I'm bad at character names. I'm well, uh, are you talking about Lermontov? Yes. The main, the main yes. play director. You, you can you can see the the anger in his eyes mm-hmm. with her leaving, yeah. and so automatically as as an audience member for the for, until that point, which I think is about maybe 40 minutes into the movie. Yeah, it's not um, very long in. You you really feel like he just doesn't care. They, yeah. they, they hide that very well that he just really doesn't care about anything about the ballet that he's just kind of funding it and trying to make a profit off of it and mm-hmm. um kind of just going with the flow like there's that scene where they're um where uh craster is doing the the was it the practice of the flutes was it or something like that? Like it's early on. He's doing practice and and he's and the guy in uh Lermitov comes in and goes, Hey, have you done the brass yet? And he's like, No, okay, first thing in the morning, come do brass. And then he just walks off. Oh, yeah, where he's just coaching the orchestra. Cause that's yeah, his, like he, that's he's like, job, Hey, yeah. just make sure you don't forget about the brass. And like that's yeah. it. And he just kind of does that's all he says, and that's all you really get from him. And it's until that moment where she leaves the his star, uh, his muse leaves that you see the first glimpse of, oh, this guy is actually deeply in control of everything mm-hmm. and he, everything's going he acts so nonchalant because everything's going the way he wants anyways yeah um yeah. He, has, he doesn't have to like hold that power because of it mm-hmm. um and then he he tries to you know he tries to plant you know the mental flag in uh victoria page by saying you know if you get involved with these if you get involved with human love, you'll never be a great dancer. And, and she's kind of taken things on board. Um, but then ultimately like he engineers that demise, not intentionally, but by putting uh craster and page in close proximity for that last two weeks before the titular ballet opens. Um, clearly that's where that's where it all began and then he throws the biggest temper tantrum afterward and and it goes out to the end of the movie too right where when she jumps in front of the train which i find um i'll I'll get back to the train i want to talk about the train later but when she jumps Mm -hmm. in front of the train and dies basically yeah only one of them goes after her He's more, and he, you can definitely tell that um, that Lermatov is like upset about losing her, about losing Victoria Page. Mm-hmm. But um, when that happens, he goes out in front of the stage and says, "Hey, we're not performing the Red Shoes yeah. right now." While the while her love for her, uh, are are they married yet? Did they get married by this? Uh, I don't remember if they were married yet. Are they were at least engaged. Yeah. Um, he runs after her and he's the one that's like, hey, please don't die on me. I need you. I, I'm sorry that this happened. I'm sorry that I made you choose these things because I actually just wanted you. 
and she's the one that asks him, please take off these red shoes. I don't want them on me anymore kind of thing. Yeah. And, and then Lermontov's just up there going like, uh, the show will go on another time. Yeah. He's, de- he's definitely upset about it all, but he he's, I think he's just more upset that he'll never get to see the performance again. Yeah. And I don't know why so much of this movie rang as why couldn't, <laughs> why didn't anyone ask her? <laughs> it seems like it seems like it seems like everyone is so so like I get it. Lermontov has had has, has been uh, the leader, and well, I I think that goes le- back to the complexity. Is they both asked her, and she has to choose, and that causes the issue. Well, right? she doesn't want to choose these things. So I don't think they asked until too late. That's fair. Like I th- I think that anybody like it's clear that Lermontov is very proud to be a ballet director and then when the red shoes when when victoria page dances the red shoes and gets glowing reviews because uh, actually we should probably make time to talk about that sequence oh yeah i will get we'll oh, get back to that i oh, think, we're, I think once we move on from the characters we'll if we were ever to talk about some of the most beautiful sequences ever put to film uh yo watch the red shoes just specifically for the dance scene in the middle um he's happy to he's happy that you know he's he's his work is validated through all the work he has enforced onto others he's he's happy that that i guess his idea brought forth a pretty good score out of craster but then craster's got his own ideas he wants to get he wants to be an ambition he wants to be a, a a composer you know, he doesn't necessarily believe in the ballet as the end all be all. He doesn't, he clearly doesn't see it as the religion that Lermontov professes it to be earlier, early in the film. And while we get the, we get what Victoria Page says in the film early on, she's like, I want to dance. Ultimately, she makes a choice based on reacting to like the tantrum that Lermontov throws. Because, you know, Lermontov pulls Craster in his offices. So I hear you and Victoria are kind of are kind of seeing each other here. Y'all are in love. What the hell's that about? And ultimately, that ends with him leaving. I, I don't really know if he, it signifies him being fired or if he's leaving, but kind of it kind of cuts both ways there. And then she's like, well. If he goes, I go. And then Grisha comes in. Well, I'm leaving too, because clearly you've got you've gone too megalom- megalomaniacal here. But then, you know, in a conversation we see later, uh, I forget which character it is. I'll look real quick. I believe it is not, it is, I think it's I think it's uh Sergei Ratov goes to all three of them who are sitting in a park, uh, Craster, Grisha, and Victoria. And he looks at Grisha and goes, well, he apologizes to you. And he's like, cool, I'll think about it, which basically means, yeah, I'm going back. But then he looks at you guys, he's like, he's, he, I've never seen him like this with you. And then they're like, okay, fine, we're both leaving. Yeah. Um, mainly because, and I honestly think like if, and I it'd be clearly, Powell and Pressburger wrote this this way to go this way but if he pulls in Victoria Page and goes hey what's going on here I thought we had I thought we kind of had an understanding or at least maybe we can have this conversation the entire second half of the film was a different thing does that make any sense yeah no I I totally can see that yeah uh you want to talk about the train now and then do the and then do the uh dance sequence yeah, I can talk about the train for a minute. I just think I think it's interesting that trains and movies are usually means of escape or means of hiding, right? I think mm-hmm. about um I think about the sting. There's a whole uh there's a whole train a couple there's a long there's quite a bit of that movie takes place on a train in the middle where yeah. they're trying to pull off a nice like sting, but really what they are doing at the same time is hiding their identities from people who might want to end up wanting to kill them. Yep. Um, I think of trains being like a lot of getaways in our movies. I think about, I, I, th- I think trains are very interesting story devices in film and in, and in books and other things, but film more, more than anything is they're so visual and so like aud- audible. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And this movie uses trains three times, right? Yes. So actually four times, but two of them are just, one of them is just reversed. Mm -hmm. So one is her stopping to get, I want to say the first time is her stopping Lermontov on a Victoria page, stopping Lermontov to like convince him of something Mm -hmm. on the way to the train. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's, she's trying to pull him back before he escapes. Uh, mm-hmm. Then there's a scene where they're what her Victoria Page and uh, Julian are watching a train and basically just discussing life, right? That's really what they're doing. Yeah. And they're just kind of they're falling in love slowly at that moment. And the train, I think, kind of symbolizes like just like the movement of their relationship, if that makes sense. Like it's how it's mm-hmm. chugging along, it's trying to build up and stuff. And then the the third one is reverse where Lermontov goes onto the train to convince Paige to come back to the troop and yep. to come perform red shoes again. And then the final time we see the train is when she jumps and that's, it's her escape of this cop between Julian and Boris. But at the same time, it's an ending and, mm-hmm. and it's not, it's a murder weapon <laughs> that, yeah. that doesn't, it doesn't happen often in the movies. Um, no. So I just found it super interesting about how much the train is in this movie. That's a that's a really good observation that I, I I've never made. So <laughs> I did that. I honestly did not register that, but I think that's very smart, very very uh, insightful. Let's talk about the dance. Uh, yeah, this dance sequence fucking rules, y'all. <laughs> um, I think like this is one of those reasons why I wouldn't want this to be made today because you could just see all of the CG. Like, I don't want to say it would automatically be bad because I think the the filmmakers that would tackle this aren't necessarily those leading the charge in in the MCU. Like this, this, this seems like a, a movie that Scorsese would want to remake or Coppola would want to remake or maybe even Spielberg. And the just the head trip that it is and the way that all of the images sort of they dance on screen, but they caught at least they cause like visions to kind of dance in your mind a little bit. They're very evocative and they kind of stimulate, you know, the imagination while being very present. And uh, it's just, it's a, it's a series of really cool ideas thrown together and, um, and coming together in brilliant synergy in my opinion. Yeah, totally. Um, from, from just the backdrop of the, you know, the spectrum of colors that goes on behind uh, Moira Shearer through most of it to the way that they, they use cinema to sort of ev- evoke the images that would be in a ballet because you won't, you might not see a ballerina jump into an inanimate pair of, uh, I forget what they're called, but ba- I'll call them ballet shoes, you know, that are just standing there to bring them to life. But he, through the, through the medium of film, you can do that. You will not see a clump of newspaper just manifest itself into the body of Grisha the way you will in film. Um, and I think while there were critics at the time that said, Oh, it's not a very realistic, you know, interpretation of, of, of the ballet, which is, I think that's kind of like, well, that's because this isn't ballet. This is a movie. <laughs> like this let is, me, this let is... me tell you a thing or two about critics. <laughs> no, um, honestly, the, the, the ballet, I've been really blown away just by a lot of movies recently, like technical of mm-hmm. the time they came out and what they were able to pull off and what they like, how good they look still. Like yeah. I've had a run of movies where it's just like, dang, this, this thing looks great. Um, That's how I felt about the ballet, right? Like it just Mm -hmm. looks fantastic. And it's so impressive what they were able to pull off at that time. I mean, I think if, in terms of, if I, if I like, there was, there was a time where I fancied myself as a, as, as a, as a film critic. And since I've kind of like, I like talking about movies and I'll, I'll, you know, say what I think is good or bad. But this is that is one of the 
few sequences where I'm like, yep, no notes, like no changes, nailed it. And, uh, and yeah, that's, whew, it's, so, it's so beautiful. This movie, like, there's a whole lot on the face that I can see folks in 2022 going, why would I watch this? It's, yeah. two, it's two hours and 15 minutes. Chances are, I don't know what a ballet is supposed to look like. Um, you know, there's all these, there's all these things culturally now that might work against it just from someone who is either new to cinema or even in a inner, even just a, just a, an avid watcher. But if you just, if you take that plunge, I can almost guarantee you will come up rewarded in some way with this particular film. Like there's not, there's very little bad about it, despite <laughs> the men in it being complete kind of shitheads. I mean, but that's the point of it, right? Like the mm-hmm. point of it is don't trust people who I'm, I'm trying. There's no like one single moral to this thing, but hundred oh, like, percent. It, it's really, but for especially like with with those two men, is like don't trust people who don't care about what you you want, but yeah. only care about what they want. Because that's what that's what comes down to with these two men is it's not until it's as you said it's too late do they care or ask what she mm-hmm. wants um yeah. and then you see which one actually wanted to do with what what she wanted but like was just too blinded by his own jealousy and passions and etc mm-hmm. i think I mean, another, ultimately yeah. i don't think I, I ultimately it's weird i think the there's a scene when victoria page and craster are beginning to like like it's that scene you were mentioning with the train like how they're falling in love and where he says, I know one day some young girl is going to ask me when the happiest I ever was is. And I'm going to talk about this moment where I'm with Victoria Page. And it's weird how that scene is like completely foreshadowing, of course. But also, like, I don't think I don't think that Craster ever planned on ending up with Page ever in his life. Yeah, because I can because even when even when he's you know, even when at the end where she's like, oh, you left your first night. And he's like, you, what do you mean? You didn't. And ultimately I want to go, hey, you came to her opening night. She didn't come to yours because she was doing hers. Y'all could have coexisted as a power couple. Yep. <laughs> you you, you could have, you both could have been fine. And she supported you for a really long time. You owe her this, but you, you walked off in a huff. I, I think what's so fascinating, especially for Boris's character, is how she like. Yes, it is about the ballet and the performance of the ballet, right? Mm-hmm. But his music is what made the Red Shoes work. It was oh, Julian's sure. music that made it work, and but he didn't care about Julian. He only cared about her. And I think it's like to play in the fact that he just likes women in general, right? But mm-hmm. I think it's just an interesting thing that he's so blinded by the performance, he forgets that there's something fueling the performance. Yeah and decides to just destroy it Mm -hmm. um because it's i not only is it like they're both just extreme talents but it is because they both love each other that this thing works (laughs) oh sure like and i think that i think there's i think there's probably an interesting love triangle going on between all three of them um I, I honestly don't know if there's any love really going on between Paige and Lermitov other than him. But like, I think she just cares about like well, him being able to give her the stage. Strictly romantic love? Probably not. I'm with you there. But I feel like there's there's a certain level of love that comes in camaraderie and working towards a goal. And I think that all of them have that, but don't realize it. Yeah. And I think that because early on craster goes to Lermontov and is like yo your your conductor stole all my music because he's my teacher and uh ultimately like at the beginning shearer's character page just wants to dance she's already a professional she's already you know making her way in that world and she's just trying to use you know her i guess it's her aunt uh, her aunt's, you know, pull and credibility being a patron of the arts to like move up an echelon, and I don't, th- I don't see that as, I don't see that as a altogether terrible thing. I like the way it's handled here because Lermontov says I don't come to parties for an audition. You know, 
come to come to get get to the studio get on get in the class you know prove to me you can do it but then as Irina is exiting the company uh Paige emerges and then all of a sudden all three elements are in place for them to kind of make magic together yeah and I think that all of the the three here that's kind of when they stop talking to each other like you know Laramontov says, Craster, give me a good score. Uh, Paige, I'm giving you a part. And then, so she's ready to give a good performance. He's ready to give a score. And then to get them in sync, they have all those lunches together. And then all of a sudden, they don't, they don't see how the unit's working. They own, like, especially the dudes, they only see their work. And they both believe that that is the thing that's making all of this great they don't like they almost completely discount her they almost completely discount the other guy as well because you know crash was like i'm making all this music larry montal's like i put this thing together meanwhile Paige's out here just trying to dance trying to do her thing and no one gives her a look it's an it's an it's an interesting albeit very lopsided love triangle imo yeah totally um, I want to talk about this movie's influences and not the things that this movie was influenced by, but what it went to influence. Okay. Because I think, and I could be, and again, someone could prove me wrong, but don't, I don't want you to do that. Um, I think this might be top five most influential movies of all time. Okay. I, I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but... Uh... I think in my younger, more idealistic days, I might agree with you. I don't really have a reason to say no or yes now. I, I think for, for two reasons by reading this. I mean, there's other people probably in general, but this movie inspired Martin Scorsese. Sure. And then look at Martin Scorsese's film work, right? Like mm-hmm. those then go on to inspire others and then go on to inspire others and then continue on. Mm-hmm. And, and also inspired Gene Kelly that so passionately that he brought the movie to the studios he worked at and said, you need to see this. Yeah. So you know that what, what we're doing is wrong mm-hmm. and we need to make stuff like this. And I think the, the just the ripple effects of just those two. And that, that's not even talking about other people I don't know about that are super influenced by this. Sure. Um, are are seen throughout and not and then just that like thinking about um suspiria and uh black swan and other movies kind of like this like they this movie sets the groundwork for those kind of thrillers or horror movies not because it's a horror or thriller but it it sets the standard for your protagonist i think in those movies the really strung out not strung out, but um, broken, broken down, and fried, pure talent. Yeah, and those are those those two movies kind of strive for in that way. Um, and I, and I think there's just like you you can if you sat down and like really pondered it for an hour or so, you could draw like a big Pepe Sylvia kind of map mm-hmm. of like oh definitely this is this is where this goes this is where this goes etc. And then like again with Scorsese restoration of the colors and the the film and stuff that went a long way to create restoration um, tools for other films. Mm-hmm. Not just that, like the importance of it, this restoration is just like, influence more frustrations. And we got more films out of this because yeah. they developed ways to restore a film like this. Um, so I, I think, uh, I just think that like, maybe not number one, but I think top five, definitely like the way that it kind of ripples out. Uh, yeah. Thinking about the way, thinking about everything you said, I, I'm really inclined. I mean, you've got, you've, you've argued me to agree with you. Um, And I know I wasn't really coming. I wasn't really trying to contradict you in any way, shape or form. Um, But also just dovetailing. Like, I don't think, I think without this, there's no Chicago. Yeah. Oh, without this, there's no, there's no, um, there's no, um, there's no like all Bob Fosse. There's no, there, yeah, yeah, there's no the, Bob Fosse. There's no cabaret. Yeah. There's no all that jazz. There's no, as you said, no Chicago. There's no, um, not it doesn't it doesn't make the modern musical, but it does because do it what Gene Kelly then goes to do after seeing this. Oh are yeah, those big musicals, right? Yeah, there's <laughs> like, no yeah, like an American in Paris probably doesn't happen without yeah. this. Yeah, so I, um, I I think like and 
I think that the techniques of how they do those ballet scenes and the special effects that they pulled off, I think that one was super influential probably at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. And how, how music works. I mean, it's all, I think it all is really influential. And I bet you anything, there was a bunch of actresses in when the 48, I bet you there was a bunch of actresses in the seventies and sixties that were really influenced by uh, Moria Shear and how she was able to present herself throughout this movie because she's yeah. like three different people in this movie. She's mm-hmm. the doe eyed fresh uh, on the stage act, uh, ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. And then during the ballet, she is the performer. She's yeah, like she... the passionate performer. And then after that, she's the superstar. Mm-hmm. And then you can argue that the fourth is at the end, the very end there where she's broken. And like, yep. those are all different, like really distinct personalities that she's able to pull off. She burned too bright, too fast. Yeah. Well, this, I, this movie's dope. I'm glad we watched yeah, it. I, I think that I think that it, it's it's a movie that like I think we were just chilling with a couple couple drinks and hit, sitting out on the porch in the in the heat wave that we're current. I'm going. I'm currently going through. Oh, it's um, pretty hot here too. So uh, I think we would be talking about this for hours. But it's one of those things where like we'll just be tra- talking ourselves in circles though on the podcast. I'll t- I'll, t- I'll tell you right now if there if. If we were in the same city, you said, "Hey, want to get a couple beers and watch the Red Shoes?" Fucking, that's a good time to me. <laughs> I mean, it's on HBO Max still, and I don't think it's going anytime soon because it's a Criterion yeah. like favorite. Yeah, Criterion um, like this and Stalker will probably be there when the Criterion Channel goes goes broke. Yeah, so I th- I recommend it. It's only like two hours and twenty minutes. It's not like a super long movie. I've no. watched longer the last. Yes, two weeks. we've we've watched long, longer for this podcast. Yeah. So yeah, we I think we it's a, a double recommend from both of us. Yes. Um. I um. Before we get to uh what we have been watching, yes. just want to talk about Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Uh, as it. a so Powell is the director. Pressburger is prominently the writer as far as I'm concerned. I know writing is kind of a collaborative effort between both of them, but look at their work. Like their work kind of rules in just about every aspect. Their partnership brought forth 24 films and like this was, let's see, this was the 10th. Just before this, they did uh, Black Narcissus and then uh, their first, or no, I'm sorry, their fourth one was the life and death of Colonel Blimp. They've also they've also got I know where I'm going, uh, 49th parallel. Most of these are in the Criterion Collection, so you probably can see most of them on the channel or on HBO Max. This filmmaking duo is pretty great, considering both are off screen. It's not like a Scorsese, De Niro, Kurosawa, Mifune, yeah. uh, or uh, Bergman, Ullman. Uh, look into look into their films. They are feasts for the senses. Almost all of them. Like, there's only a few I haven't seen. One of my favorites is uh, called it's called Tales of Hoffman, which is another. It's it's another one kind of. I think they were kind of trying to do the red shoes again. Doesn't doesn't hit the same. But really, take a look at take a look at their work because uh, it's really good. Life and Death of Colonel Blimp is great too. Uh, just want to shout them out because I really yeah, like them. Cool. And I think it's funny when they stopped working. Uh, Michael Powell made uh, a film called Peeping Tom. That is, if you were to look at what he did with Pressburger, and then look at that, you're like, wow, one of these is not like the other. But Peeping Tom is still kind of a masterpiece. I don't really want to go into it because I would just say watch that and and just watch that kind of as cold as you could go. But it's a it's an odd turn from his work with Pressburger, but not a bad one nonetheless. Yeah, totally. Now I actually realized I've watched two things since our last recording, Jesse. What have you watched? Uh, I've watched a few things. Um, where do where should we where should we start? So let's talk about a couple couple of interesting films that I watched for the first time. Okay, I have watched Predator, The Terminator, The Abyss, and Terminator Two for the first time in wow. the last two weeks. Predator was okay. pretty pretty good. Predator's pretty good. 
it's a it's a uh, it's a little dated, but I have to I have to give it some credit because it's all macho men. So of course they're going to use those slurs. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But I think the final act makes that movie like really great. Yeah. Arnold's Arnold's just so surprisingly competent in that movie, and not mm-hmm. just competent, like he actually stands out compared to everybody else as an actor in that movie. Yeah. Um, and I have a hot take that I will get to about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, and when we get to Terminator 2, uh, okay. Terminator, great movie, feels like a great slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Um, audio, I don't know if this was my streaming of the audio or what audio set, like it was filmed in a hallway the entire time. Uh, I don't know if that's just because that they had no budget or, or what, it was very uh, weird. I have a feeling that might be streaming, that might be, yeah, I think that might have been. Um, The Abyss. I think that movie is pretty cool. I feel bad for everybody that worked on it. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and then Terminator 2. Terminator 2 is uh, fantastic. 10 out of 10 yeah. movie. Yeah. Ter- Terminator 2 is kind of, it's one of those, if you want it, if you want, like, if you were to try and go down the list of, like, ultimate popcorn movies, yeah, Terminator 2. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think anybody that wants more out of Terminator 2 than this is just a fun time is going to be disappointed because I don't think Cameron was trying to say anything in that oh, movie. Oh, no, other he than, super wasn't. He yeah, super he was just having, he was having a good, I think Terminator has more to say than Terminator 2 because I think at the time he was like, oh, this is kind of an interesting idea, isn't it? Well, Terminator mm-hmm. 2 is like, what if he had fun though? Yeah, well, what I if, mean, it, Terminator 2 is kind of like the, is, is kind of like the archetype of a sequel. Yeah. Um, When you, when you start, when you, when you put a movie that's going to be sequelized, uh, the first one kind of has to lay some ground rules and cr- cr- more or less create a universe. I know that sounds way more highfalutin than it needs to be, but the second one is usually what's it like to play in that universe. Yeah. And Terminator two does that as well as putting forth new ideas that aren't beyond what was laid out in the original film. Yeah, I agree. Um, so my hot take about Arnold though is I think dollars for donuts or dollars to dollars to donuts. Dollars to donuts, yeah. Uh Arnold has a better filmography than Stallone does. Oh, that's yeah, no, that's and yeah, I agree with you. Besides the Rocky films, Arnold is a better actor than Stallone is. Sure. Yeah, no, I would, Arnold has way more charisma on screen than Stallone does. I haven't watched any of the more recent dramas that he's tried to do. I don't think Arnold has ever like successfully done a drama, unless you know of one that I don't know of that you've seen. Not that there's something inherently s- sad about Stallone in general when he wants it to be that mm-hmm. like m- movies like Rocky or Rocky Balboa or Creed, right? Like he he lends himself to the drama of those movies very well. Yeah. Or the first sure. Rambo, right? Like those those lean very heavily on that on his able to, to draw the audience and on his his sad sack kind of appeal. Yes. But I think Arnold has more success in genre film than Stolen ever could. Like I think about Terminator right, and, and Predator. These are sci-fi movies that are super successful. But mm-hmm. then he also had Commando and stuff, and those yep. are just regular straight-up action movies that are super successful. And then he did comedies for forever that were all super successful for the most mm-hmm. part, like Kindergarten Cop and um jingle all the way that was one of my personal favorites even though it is awful um twins twins yeah and like he did that for quite a while and then he went back and did action movies that were pretty successful yeah um and believe it or not he made a movie like junior yeah that ultimately if you look at the face of what the movie junior is you're like what the fuck is this bullshit but (laughs) It actually comes off being a little better than you expected. Yeah, totally. And, and probably not even a little, a lot better than you expected, like to a surprising degree. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm with you 100. percent Schwarze- um, Schwarzenegger is has a way better filmography than Stallone, and it's not close. I watched After the Thin Man and rewatched Clue. Those are great double features. Um, yeah. I don't know how they're going to remake Clue because they will not do the comedy right anymore. I saw I saw a TikTok about um, what's a movie that should be remade with one actual actor and the rest of the cast as Muppets. Clue would be a good one. And they said the the person said, "Well, there's there's only one answer. It's Clue." 
they put Jeremy Irons as Wadsworth. That works. The rest, I can see the that. rest, the rest of the cast is, uh, is the Muppets, and I'm like, just do that. There's a lot of slapstick, dry slapstick, and dry wordplay included that you would never. It would be hard to see. I can't see modern comedy doing this because modern comedy is so like on the nose. Like you have to know this is supposed to be a joke, right? Yeah. Like I think my favorite line in Clue, and I'm going to get it wrong, but what after like they discovered the death of Mr. Body, like the actual death, mm-hmm. and, and then he his body gets moved. Um, mm-hmm. He says something along the lines of, "This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to find out who killed him, where they killed him." how they killed him and why they killed him and then the candlestick falls on his head and he gets knocked out but i think that line is so funny because he's delivering yeah. it so seriously and he's just explaining the rules of clue yeah he's like i they're like stop shouting i'm not shouting okay um, i'm shouting i'm shouting <laughs> um and then i saw in theaters one movie and that is 3,000 Years of Longing, which is the new George Millar movie. Yeah, I need to watch that. That movie looks good. Um, I feel bad that movie's not doing super well because I think it's very good. It's just... That's, that's, that seems about right. It's a solid two hours of a, of someone who loves stories telling stories. Um, I wish it... Like some people said, I wish it was like 20 minutes longer, actually. And I actually mm-hmm. do because I think the final the final plot hook doesn't have enough time to develop and that's its biggest flaw because it's only like... It's less than two hours, I think. I think it's like an hour 40 or something like that. Okay. Um, does it say how long it is on here? Let me see. 108 minutes. So yeah, not even two hours. Yeah. Uh, it definitely could have just gone to two hours and probably would have been a five out of five for me. Um, and then I said Spartacus. What do you think about Spartacus? I think I can't watch three hour epics by myself. Fair. That I think that's I think that's why I came away from that. I think Spartacus is a really good movie, but three hours of doing that watching that movie by myself in my room i was like i need someone to talk to while i'm watching this there's no like i think that's what this movie needed for me and i and i felt the same way at the time watching like something like ben hurt i wasn't mm-hmm. like talking through that with my dad but i think if i had like a friend to talk through that i would enjoy it more yeah but i think the final act of spartacus is really really good mm-hmm. and that battle is so impressive oh yeah no i just... can't believe they weren't gonna do it the the scope of that movie is is crazy. Yeah, I like I like hearing that like Kubrick was the one who was like, no, no, if we're gonna talk, if we're gonna have a battle, we need to show this. Yeah. We can't just like explain it off screen and like have a painting. Yeah, it um, it's not gonna work that well. So yeah, those are the those are the movies I've been watching. Uh, and so in two weeks, unless Matthew, you had something you want to add? Oh, uh, I have two things that I was watching. Oh, I thought, well, I thought when we started, she hadn't watched anything, so. Yeah, no, I thought I hadn't, but I actually, right before I asked you, I said, oh, so I thought of two things I watched. What have you watched? <laughs> oh, sorry, I missed that. Totally. That's okay. That's quite all right. Um, So I watched Touch of Evil. I've heard of that. Yeah. If you, well, you, you definitely heard of it because at the beginning of the movie, the player that we covered on the show, Fred Ward is talking about it nonstop. Uh, But I watched that and that is a damn good movie. I'll also say that it has not aged well because of a ton of cultural shit. Um, I noticed this when I first watched it in the nineties, I this isn't this isn't new information. Um, I'm just like, why? In, in in the 90s, like when I watched it, it was like I was a senior in high school when I watched it. And like I had taken three years of Spanish in high school. Not that that informed me for this movie, but you start to realize that Hollywood has a problem casting anybody anybody with an accent has to be has to be the bad guy or they has to they have to be portrayed as the bad guy and if they're a main character it doesn't matter if they're foreign we're going to put a white person in that role and it is charlton heston problems with charlton heston aside like was not a bad actor but just making Charlton Heston tan does not make does not make that man Mexican, and then not yeah, to mention it's the Genghis Khan effect, isn't it? <laughs> not to mention that no one actually references the proper like pronunciation. And I'm not saying we have to we have to give everybody a Spanish lesson, but the fact that everyone is like I expect 
the disrespectful white folks in the movie to refer to the Mexican crime family as Grandy. Uh, But even Charlton Heston, who is playing a canonical Mexican, (laughs) says Grandy. And I'm like, come on, man. Even even there's so like all that said, all that said, like Orson Welles knows how to fucking direct a movie. (laughs) <laughs> and he, he knows how to act in a fucking movie um and uh it is it is a great film noir it is a great mystery and it it's it's really good even with all of that all of the all of those problems but it stars you know orson welles janet lee marlena dietrich charlton heston and several other key players and it's it has a fantastic score by henry mancini uh, it's, it's a really good film but it has problems the other thing i watched uh speaking of people who never people speaking of men who never actually talk to their girlfriend or wife leave her to heaven uh it stars i forget who it stars off the bat but the female lead is uh jean tyranny who i sent you a message on discord you did i don't i don't know if i had ever seen her in a movie before watching this uh a few or a few days ago but her entrance into this movie just sent my heart a flutter in a way that probably hasn't really happened since the first time I watched an Audrey Hepburn movie or the first time I saw Notorious starring Ingrid Bergman or the first time I saw Eight and a Half where Claudia Cardinal just shows up like an angel. Uh, the rest of this movie, though, nobody seems to ask Gene Tierney's character, like, what's wrong? Yeah. And be, and, I th- and I think the idea is to, like, I kind of wish Reba watched this with me because... I would love to get the therapist take on not like diagnosis because that's, that's breach of ethics and whatnot, but like, I would love to see, I would love to get Reba's thoughts on, on this movie because to me it rings as uh, Cornell Wilde, just his heart being in the right place, but he could have just said, Hey, what do you think about this? And probably they had a conversation and probably so much of the drama in the movie just gets avoided um but it's a very good technicolor noir uh vincent price has a nice cameo in it uh but ultimately like just anybody out there make sure you check in with your partners because jesus christ there there there's basic you know relationship stuff here and i i'm no expert but it seems like some of the things that happened i would have at least sort of what would you think if we did this? What would you think if we did this instead of just putting this woman in this situation and forcing, almost forcing her to react? It's very, it's oddly enough, very similar to the red shoes in that respect. Um, but altogether, not a bit, not a, not a, not a unrewarding watch. So it's in that uh, noir in color set that's on the criterion channel right now it might be on hbo max i don't know i've not done any of that research but on the criterion channel it is there and uh it's directed by john m stall who i'm not 100 familiar with but based on based on this i would look at more of his work it sounds pretty good i want to check it out yeah that's what i've watched well in two weeks we will be watching superman the movie Directed by the wonderful, um, what is his name again? I forgot. That wasn't a joke. I just <laughs> honestly forgot. Um, uh, <laughs> but he, he's wonderful. He directed the Goonies. Um, oh, oh, Richard Donner. Richard Donner. Thank you. And then after that, I think it is the start of our Halloween episodes, our Spooky Month episodes. And I believe the first one will have a guest, or maybe the second one. One of them is going to have a guest. I just got to confirm dates. Cool. Um, but yeah, that's gonna be exciting. Matthew, where can people find you on the internet? 
You can find me at infinite underscore rewind everywhere I'd like to be. That's predominantly Twitter and Instagram. Um, if you are if you are floating around Discord, you will find me in the Uppercut Crit server. Uh, you can also find me hosting podcasts. Uh, I co-host uh, a podcast called Trivial Merit with Jesse's and my mutual friend Caroline, where we make playlists to get you from a negative mood to a positive one. Uh, we just re- we recently released our beach house episode. Very good. Next is Green Day, and after that, because we're in the midst of doing that, we're in the midst of prepping that one right now. Open Mike Eagle. That's gonna be fun. I'm I, very excited for that one. I don't think I like Green Day. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, not that I, I listened to a lot of Green Day in high school, and I think that burned me out on Green Day. And then I got more as an adult, and I'm like, I do. I don't think I've actually ever really liked Green Day. Well, like, um, I don't remember. I don't remember how in the weeds we got here, but I remember loving them in middle school and high school because that was when they showed up. Yeah. Um, and then with like, and I constant, constant. They were a constant presence from what 94 to like 2004 for me 94 was when I went to high school and you know they released their big album Dookie Insomniac Nimrod Warning that's from 94 to 2000 and then in 2004 they released um, American Idiot which is still my favorite of their albums but going back for that particular episode, I did not care for Dookie. Like I liked a couple, I still like Longview. I still like Welcome to Paradise. But for the rest of it, I really didn't care anymore. And that's probably more, I've just, I, it's been, tw- what, 28 years since Dookie came out? Like it's, it's been a long time. I've lived a bit of life since then. I've grown a lot. Um. I still like Insomniac and Nimrod, though. Warning's pretty cool, too. Uh, I, and I I did make a concerted effort to try and go beyond American Idiot. Just none of it did anything for me. Uh, I didn't think it was... I didn't think any of it was actually bad. It just it didn't... None of it grabbed me anymore. But if you want a Green Day song that Caroline and I both love, J-A-R off of the Angus soundtrack, still a banger. Um... And then uh, you can also find me on the Bald Gun Guy podcast from Scanline Media. We are doing a playthrough of the modern Hitman trilogy. We are in the middle of Hitman 2. We are about to go into the final episode or the final chapter of that. We also have DLC for that game after this as well. Uh, this This would also be the part where I talk about Story Route Zero. But Story Route Zero is going to be on hiatus for a while. Uh, the four of us are at at a very specific level of burnout um, in in our personal lives. And we all just said, hey, we need to to take a break for a bit. Uh, I know Jason and Michaela are kind of working on a thing. Uh, Moose is in the middle of changing jobs. And I... In the coming month, I'm going to have to start researching how to keep my x-ray license because I am I have to do what is called a CQR, where I basically have to retake my boards because it will be 10 years since I've been an x-ray tech in 2023. So in order for me to renew my license, I'm going to have to take a big old exam. So I have to start looking into that in November of this year. Won't really affect uh, this or trivial merit, mainly because um the the workload for for this show no disrespect uh is significantly lighter and significantly easier to manage um but doing doing that is going to be a chore so right now story Route zero will be on hiatus we're not going away completely or at least that's the way it stands right now but those are all the places you can find me man that took a long time jesse yeah, where can, can find, we find you? Wake you back up me. first because I talked a long time. Now, where can we find you? <laughs> you can find me everywhere at Sleep Over the Bed. 
Uh, I have things I'm working on. They're going to be coming back. But once they're back, I will talk about it more. I'd rather just wait until they're done. Um, and you can find this show on Twitter at FreeReelingIt. You can email us at FreeReelingIt at gmail.com. If you have anything you want to talk about movie-wise, just email us there or tweet at us. Yeah. Um, Matthew, who does our theme song? My buddy Jason. Uh, he goes under the name Deadeye, D-E-A-D, dash the letter I, all caps when you spell the man's name. You can find him under that handle on Spotify. His album, uh, Bloodshed Kingdom, came out earlier this year. It is a banger, in my opinion, and I think you should listen to it. He was also part of a reggae duo uh, back in the early 2010s called The Hope Street Steppers. They have one album, also on Spotify, called Black Lightning. Both of these albums are amazing. Um, Black Lightning is one of the best reggae albums I've ever heard. Check them out. Support my buddy Jason. He's really cool, and he's really smart, and I think he's really good at music. I think this movie would have been better if the shoes were purple and not red. <laughs>